Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. How, how are you doing? How's life? I know I know some things have popped up, <laughs> but... Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I am doing much better than I was the last couple of weeks. I'm no longer sick, which is nice. I am also... I guess not as burnt out as I was before. <laughs> like I'm still, I'm still feeling it a little bit, and but it is what it is at this point. That's just like my persistent state of being. <laughs> Did you ever figure out if you had an allergic reaction? Uh, I don't know. I I stopped using the product and I gave it to my sister. So. <laughs> Did you give it to Amanda? <laughs> Because she, I was like, it has really good ratings online. It's just not good for my skin. So I was like, I don't want it to go to waste. So if you can use it, feel free. I'm not terrible. I promise. I mean, most of the time I'm not terrible. <laughs> so life is slowing down a bit. Now we're getting into the holiday season. I am so excited for spooky season. The holiday season, the holiday season. <laughs> and I guess now would be a good time to let you guys know that we are going to be doing episodes up until Thanksgiving, and then we will be taking a break for the holidays from there on out. And then we'll come back sometime in the new year. We haven't quite decided a date yet. So we have a handful more episodes. And with our next couple episodes, because it's October, we're doing something a little bit different we will be doing haunted locations for the most part. This next one is Ooh. kind of paranormal-esque, but more in the realm of what we did last year, where we talk about a movie that was made based off of a true crime case. So we're going to do that one. And then after that, we're going to do haunted locations, including a special Halloween episode featuring my sister. So keep your eyes peeled for that. The voice of Boruto. Yes, the voice of many many a character and the in sailor jupiter <laughs> the voice of the demon on my shoulder so what is our case today Brittany? who's the angel on your shoulder do you have one it's not me <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great question and i'm gonna have to defer i'm gonna plead the fifth <laughs> on that one <laughs> okay What's our case about today, Brittany? The kidnapping and the murder of the Lindbergh baby. Oh no, not the murder. For whatever reason, I feel like I knew about the kidnapping, but I don't think I actually knew about the murder. So part of this is going to be new information for me. I don't know why, though. Why that's one of those well, things that like I only knew half the information on. Well, I'm bringing you mur murder. <laughs> Judas, no. <laughs> Judas, no. <laughs> That's my favorite line. Valid. That one in. What the fuck, Richard? <laughs> I don't know that one. You're going to have to send it oh. to me. Okay. I'm going to send you that one because it's so funny. Please do. Okay. That was pretty much all, I guess, for updates. So I'm going to pass it off to Brittany and let her take it away. Okay. So I'm doing the murder and the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, not in that order. <laughs> okay, so in 1927, 
So that's like a while ago, like 1927. It's before women had rights. You said 1977. It was 1927. I thought I said 1927. You said 77. 27. Charles Lindbergh Sr. became the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean without taking a single stop, guiding his single-engine plane from New York to Paris. Whatever. It's impressive. Amelia did it first. But he was the first. He was the he was the first. Well, he became more controversial as the 1930s wore on, but Lindbergh was considered an American hero in 1932. Which brings me to my point. We gotta just stop considering these random ass people to be American heroes, okay? Yeah. Just because he flew a plane from New York to Paris and didn't stop, I don't think that really qualifies him to be an American hero. That's just a, my take on it, but, you know, whatevs. No, I'm, I'm of the same mind, because, like, I don't know. It's the same thing that people do with celebrities. They put them up on a pedestal, and then as soon as they are human and show that they have flaws, which everybody does, all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, no, boycott them, cancel them, you know? And it's like, I don't know, man. I'm sure if we look back at your history, there'd be some things that we'd, we'd cancel you over to. So just show people some consideration. Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., his 20-month-year-old son... Wait, the 20-month-old son of the famous aviator in Anne Morrow Lindbergh was kidnapped about 9 p.m. on March 1st in 1932 from his nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Charles Sr. had heard a noise coming from what he assumed was a wooden crepe snapping, but he didn't think too much of it. I don't know why. That's kind of weird. Yeah, especially that late at night. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not late for me, but I'm also a night owl, so... The child's absence was discovered and reported to his parents, who were then at home at approximately 10 p.m. by the child's nurse, Betty Gow. Lindbergh Sr. and his wife had been downstairs relaxing when Betty rushed to tell them the horrific discovery that the baby had been kidnapped. I don't know why she had a nurse, but whatever. Well, that was kind of a thing back then. You would have somebody else take care of your kids so that you could kind of do other stuff, I guess. Which I'm sure helps when you're, like, fresh off of giving birth. Because, you know, the whole postpartum depression thing, but... So, Lindbergh, they immediately began searching and found a ransom note on the windowsill, and it was, like, really badly written. The window was left open, and a broken ladder had been outside, which I assume was what he heard, because it was a wooden, and it snapped. So, yeah. The letter stated, quote, Dear Sir, I have... 50,000 and the, the money sign. Now, on the money, so I'm going to say the money sign is at the end and not the beginning because it's, it's not correct. Have $50,000 ready, 25,000 in 20 bills, 15,000 in 10 bills, and 10,000 in 5 bills. After two to four days, we inform you where to deliver money. We warn you for making any public or notify police the child is in gut care. I don't really know what gut care means. I'm assuming they're going to kill it, <laughs> but that's just me. In gut care. No, they're, they're worried about his gut health. You know, they're they're giving him probiotics. They're giving him athletic greens. <laughs> yes, exactly. After reading the ransom note, Lindbergh searched the entire house and grounds again, and then he was like, I'm going to call the cops. Which, good for him, because people don't be calling the cops immediately, you know, it stresses me out. Right. After the Hopewell police were notified, the report was telephoned to the New Jersey State Police, who assumed charge of the investigation. 
and during the search at the kidnapping scene, traces of mud were found on the floor of the nursery. Footprints impossible to measure were found at the nursery went under the nursery window. Two sections of the ladders had been used in reaching the window. One of the sections was split or broken where it jointed the other, indicating that the ladder had been broken during the ascent or descent, and there was no blood stains in or about the nursery, nor were any fingerprints found. Despite everything they, like, found, nothing was immediately useful to the police. Mm -hmm. And so they questioned the household and estate employees immediately, pretty much. But by the next day, word had gotten out about kidnapping, drawing the scores of newspaper journalists, well-wishers, and volunteers to the Lindbergh resident, all of whom just about wrecked the crime scene and made the further retrieval of evidence almost impossible. It also brought hundreds of false reports of sighting and information. I don't know why people do that. I think that's so annoying. Which part? The false information? Mm-hmm. I guess everybody wants to be either helpful or they think that they can have, you know, their 15 minutes of fame because they're going to be part of the police report or whatever. I don't know why you would want to be, but I don't know. The FBI also came calling the next day, and its offers of help was far more useful. Military officials and investigators also offered their services, claiming to have expertise in kidnappings and law enforcement. However, only one of them genuinely actually did. (laughs) So Herbert Norman Schwarzoff, superintendent of the New Jersey State Police Department, theorized that the kidnapping was part of an organized crime ring rather than a single perp seeking ransom money. Interesting. Following that lead, they reached out to monsters both in and out of prison, hoping one of them might have information on the Lindbergh baby. Al Capone himself even reached out to Lindbergh Sr., offering his services in exchange for an early prison release. That <laughs> offer was quickly denied. <laughs> I mean, I got I to gotta give it to him. He, he saw an opportunity and he took it. He sh- he sh- he shot a shot, you know. <laughs> the worst thing they could have said was no, you know, and they did say no. Yeah, but he tried. You're right, and that's all that matters. You're right. <laughs> so a second ransom note was received by Colonial Lindbergh on March 6, 1932. Like Colonial Lindbergh is also Lindbergh Senior. Postmarked Brooklyn, New York, March 4th, in which the ransom demand was increased to seventy thousand dollars. A police conference was then called by the governor of Trenton, New Jersey, which was attended by prosecuting officials, police authorities, and government representatives. A third ransom note was received by Colonial Lindbergh's attorney on March 8th, informing that an intermediary appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted and requesting a note in a newspaper. I don't know why they requested a note in a newspaper, but they did. Can I interrupt you? Mm-hmm. It's Colonel. Colonel, not Colonial. Is it Colonel? What? Uh-huh. I know it's it's spelled the stupidest way considering how it's pronounced. There's no R. <laughs> <laughs> the third ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney on March 8th, informing that an intermediary appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted and they requested a note in the newspaper. They're making a lot of requests. I know. Dr. John F. Condon from Bronx, New York City, a retired school principal, published the in the, quote, Bronx Home News, end quote, an offer to act as a go-between and to pay an additional $1,000 ransom. The following day, the fourth ransom note was received by Dr. Condon, which indicated he would be acceptable as a go-between. This was approved by Colonel Lindbergh. These are very bossy kidnappers. <laughs> I know. On March 10th, 1932, Dr. Condon received $70,000 in cash as ransom and immediately started negotiations for payments through newspaper columns using the code name, quote, Joffsey, end quote. 
It's weird kid name. At about 8.30 p.m. on March 12th, after receiving an anonymous telephone call, Dr. Conan received the fifth ransom note delivered by Joseph Peroni, a taxi cab driver who received it from an unidentified stranger. The message stated that another note would be found beneath a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from the outlying subway station. So many goddamn notes. This note, the sixth one, was found by Condon and is indicated following the instructions therein. The doctor met an unidentified man who called himself John at Woodland, Woodlawn Cemetery near 20, 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. They discussed payment of the ransom money. The stranger agreed to furnish, you know, the child's identity because Dr. Conan was like, how I know you actually have a kid and you're not just like sending yeah. in the 30s. Can't really tell. Yeah. And he was like, I got you. I'll send you something. Conan was accompanied by a bodyguard except while talking to John. <laughs> he got a bodyguard. He's like pretty Spears. During the next few days, Dr. Conan repeated his advertisements, urging further contact and stating his willingness to pay the ransom. A baby's sleeping suit as a token of identity and a seventh ransom note was received by Dr. Conan on March 16th. Sleeping suit is pajamas. So, the suit was del- delivered to Colonel Lindbergh and later identified in- as that it was positively his son. Conan re- continued his advertisements. The eighth ransom note was received by Conan on March 21st, insisting on complete compliance and advising that the kidnapping had been planned for a year, which is wild. On March 29th, Betty Gow, the Lindbergh nurse, found the infant's thumb guard worn at the time of the kidnapping near the entrance of the estate. That following day, the ninth ransom note, it's like to keep them from sucking their thumbs. I mean, I guess that was the form of communication back then, but I'm just like, God damn. Like, that's so many notes. Why are you so bossy? (laughs) The following day, the ninth ransom note was received by Conan, threatening to increase the demand to $100,000 and refusing a code for use in newspaper columns. The 10th ransom note received by Dr. Conan on April 1st, 1932, instructed him to have the money ready by the following night, to which Conan replied by an ad in the press. The 11th ransom note was delivered to Conan on April 2nd, 1932, by an unidentified taxi driver who said he received it from an unknown man. Dr. Conan then found the 12th ransom note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Tremont Avenue, Bronx, New York, as instructed in the 11th note. Shortly thereafter, on the same evening, by following the instructions contained in the 12th note, Conan again met with whom he believed to be John to reduce the demand to $50,000. The amount was handed to the stranger in exchange for a receipt and the 13th note containing instructions to the effect that the kidnapped child could be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. The stranger then walked north into the park woods. The following day, an unsuccessful search for the baby was made near Martha's Vineyard. The search was later repeated. Dr. Conan was positive that he would recognize John if he ever saw him again. So 12th ransom notes in, like, total. How do we know that these people were actually, like, involved? Like, other than that suit? I don't know. I guess it just seems to me like maybe the they were all, like, pulling one over on them. But maybe I'm just overly skeptical. Yeah. On May 12th, a little over a month after the disappointment in Massachusetts, and 72 days after the baby first went missing, Charlie Jr.'s badly decimated body was found alongside a highway near the Lindbergh estate. I know, I know. We won't keep you sitting on the edge of your seat too long. We will get right back to that after a quick word about our sponsors. 
Next Partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about and it didn't really taste super healthy. It kind of has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to taking every morning. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. So you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different little pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We're super excited to share our newest collaboration with you all. Violet and Suds is a neurodivergent and LGBTQ-owned small business that started in October of 2012. They create all kinds of products with various themes from bath and soap products, candles, stickers and stationery, and jewelry and accessories. All products are carefully handcrafted and recipes are hypoallergenic, vegan, cruelty-free, and all-natural. 10% of their monthly profit is donated to the Tiny Paws Kitten Shelter, so you can look forward to your self-care routine and know your money is going to a good cause. You can use our exclusive code WICKED20 to get a discount of 20% off your whole order. Again, that code is WICKED20. So head on over to violetandsuds.com and use that code at checkout. We'll see you there. I know, I know. We won't keep you sitting on the edge of your seat too long. We will get right back to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about and it didn't really taste super healthy. It kind of has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to taking every morning. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. So you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different little pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We're super excited to share our newest collaboration with you all. Violet and Suds is a neurodivergent and LGBTQ-owned small business that started in October of 2012. 
They create all kinds of products with various themes from bath and soap products, candles, stickers and stationery, and jewelry and accessories. All products are carefully handcrafted and recipes are hypoallergenic, vegan, cruelty-free, and all-natural. 10% of their monthly profit is donated to the Tiny Paws Kitten Shelter, so you can look forward to your self-care routine and know your money is going to a good cause. You can use our exclusive code WICKED20 to get a discount of 20% off your whole order. Again, that code is WICKED20. So head on over to violetandsuds.com and use that code at checkout. We'll see you there. His skull is fractured and a hole was over his right ear. The small body was almost a skeleton and it laid in a shallow grave beside the Princeton Hopewell Road, four miles from the Lindbergh Estate and within 75 feet of the emergency telephone line used by New Jersey State Police in their hunt for the abductors. Dirt and leaves had been brushed across the hastily scooped, like, depression where the baby was, in which the dead child had been placed, and a footprint stretched across his worn, his weather-worn flannel undergarments, as if the kidnapper had vindictively tried to stamp the body face, like, the body face foremost into the ground. Mm. He was like, oh, like that. How could you do that to a baby? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care how mad you are at, like, the adult or whatever in the situation, but, like... The baby didn't do shit. The body seemed to not have been disturbed since the murders left it. Two heavy blows to the head were considered to be the cause of death. One caused a fracture on the left side, left side extending from the top of the head just below the left ear, and the other left a hole in an inch in diameter back to back of the right ear, which was at first thought to be a bullet wound, but it wasn't. Quote, it was as if some person had held the baby tightly in his arms and deliberately hammered the head with the purpose of causing instant death. End quote. The New Jersey State Police Chief Colonel H. Norman Schwartzoff wrote in a statement about the discovery. A dented thermos laid near the body and that was believed to be the murder weapon. Quote, although it was possible that the abduction and murder were spite work, it seemed more likely that the kidnappers, observing from this lookout point that the alarm was spreading from the Lindbergh home, became frightened, killed their small prisoner, and then fled. End quote. The New York Daily Times read, it's believed that the baby was killed the same night it was, like, kidnapped because it was dead for almost as long as they had been searching for it. Okay, so the vast national interest in the case and the priority put on it by first Hoover and then President Franklin Roosevelt led to hundreds of tips from well-meaning citizens. Over 200 people confessed to the crime, but none of the stories ever held water. May 13, 1932, the president directed all the governmental investigative agencies should place themselves at the disposal of the state of New Jersey and that the FBI should serve as a clearinghouse and coordinating agency for all investigations in this case conducted by federal investigative units. On May 23, 1932, the FBI in New York City informed banks in Greater New York that the Bureau was coordinating was the coordinating agency for the governmental activity in the case. A close watch for ransom money was requested. The New Jersey State Police announced on May 26, 1932, the offer of a reward not to exceed $25,000 for information resulting in the apprehension and conviction of the kidnapper or kidnappers. In compliance with the request made by Colonel Schwarzkopf, Schwarzkopf, whatever, <laughs> copies of the notice of the reward were forwarded by the FBI to all law enforcement officials and agencies throughout the U.S. What did help 
almost incidentally, was President Roosevelt's decision to take the United States off gold standard in summer of 1933. Because in the bag of the ransom money, two of them were gold certificates that were about to like expire. Oh, uh, okay. Because at this point, you could have gold certificates. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about the gold standard, because I don't really know, and I know you guys probably really don't know, so... I'm about to inform you all. Teach me something. On June 5th, 1933, the United States went off, went off the gold standard, a monetary system in which currency is backed by gold, when Congress enacted a joint resolution nullifying the right of creditors to demand payment in gold. The United States had been on gold standards since 1879, except for an embargo on gold exports during World War I. But bank failures during the Great Depression of the 1930s frightened the public into hoarding gold, making the policy unattainable. Soon after taking office in March 1933, President Roosevelt declared a nationwide bank moratorium in order to prevent a run on the banks by consumers lacking confidence in the economy. He also forbade banks to pay out gold or to export it. According to the Keynesian economic theory, one of the best ways to fight off an economic downturn is to inflate the money supply. Increasing the amount of gold held by the Federal Reserve would in turn increase its power to inflate the money supply. Facing similar pressures, Britain had dropped off the gold standards in 1931 and Roosevelt had taken note. On April 5th, 1933, Roosevelt ordered all gold coins and gold certificates in denominations of more than $100 turned in for other money. It required all persons to deliver all gold coins, gold bullion, and gold certificates owned by them to the Federal Reserve by May 1st for the set price of $20.67 per ounce. By May 10th, the government had taken in $300 million of gold coins and $470 million of gold certificates. Two months later, a joint resolution of Congress abrogated the gold clauses in many public and private obligations that required the, de the debtor to repay the creditor in gold dollars of the same weight and fineness as those borrowed. In 1934, the government price of gold was increased to $35 per ounce, effectively increasing the gold of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet by 69%. This increase in assets allowed the Federal Reserve to further inflate the money supply. The government held the $35 per ounce price until August 15, 1971, when President Richard Nixon announced that the United States would no longer convert dollar to gold at a fixed value, thus completely abandoning the gold standard. In 1974, President Ger Gerald Ford signed the legislation that permitted Americans again to own gold billion. And that is your little class on the gold standard you're welcome thank you i feel very knowledgeable now you're welcome okay well back to the investigation <laughs> <laughs> the president's proclamation requiring the return to the treasury of all gold and gold certificates was valuable aid in the case in as much as forty thousand dollars of the ransom money had been paid in gold certificates and at that time of the proclamation a large portion of this money was known to be outstanding therefore the space of the investigation was emphasized on january 17 1934 a circular letter was issued by new york city bureau Office to all banks and their branches in New York City requesting the extremely close watch of the ransom certificates. And in February 1934, all bureau offices, offices were supplied with copies of the bureau's revised pamphlet containing the serial numbers of the ransom bills. The New York City Bureau's office distributed copies of the pamphlets to each employee handling currency in banks, clearing houses, grocery stores, in certain selected communities, insurance company, gasoline billing stations, airports, department stores, post office, and telegraph companies. In the summer of 1934, there were 16 gold certificates spent in places in and around Manhattan's Upper East Side. 
this was significant because the neighborhood was at the time a major enclave of German immigrants and their first-generation descendants. And the handwriting on the ransom notes all suggested to experts that they were written by someone from Germany who spoke limited English. (laughs) Okay. On March 2nd, 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered 296 $10 gold certificates and $120 gold certificate in all of the Lindbergh ransom notes. These bills were included among the currency received at the Federal Reserve Bank on May 1st, 1933, and apparently they had been made in one deposit. Immediately upon the discovery of those bills, deposit tickets at the Federal Reserve Bank for May 1st, 1933 were examined. One found bearing the name and address of, quote, J.J. Faulkner. 537 West 149th Street, end quote. And then marked thereon gold certificates of $10 and $20 in the amount of $2,980. Despite extensive investigation, the depositor was never located. Examination of the ransom notes by handwriting experts resulted in a virtually unanimous opinion that all the notes were written by the same person and that the writer was of German nationality but had spent some time in America. Dr. Conan described John, the guy he met with, as Scandinavian and believing he could identify the man, spent considerable time viewing the numerous photographs of possible suspects and known criminals, but did not pick him out in a lineup. Just want to point that out. In this connection, the FBI retained the services of an artist to prepare a portrait of John from descriptions furnished by Dr. Conan and Joseph Perioni, the taxi cab driver who had delivered one of the ransom notes to Dr. Conan. Another interesting attempt to identify the kidnapper centered around the ladder used within the crime. Police quickly realized that it was crudely built, but built nonetheless by someone familiar who, with wood who was mechanically inclined. The ladder had been thoroughly examined for fingerprints and had been exhibited to builders, carpenters, and neighbors of the Lindberg's in vain, but no fingerprints were ever found. The findings were summarized in a report and later played a critical role in the trial of the kidnapper. No one really did not. <laughs> On September 15, 1934, an alert attendant who had received a bill and payment for five gallons of gasoline from a man whose description fitted closely that of the individual who had passed other bills in recent weeks. The filling station attendant, being suspicious of the $10 gold certificate, recorded the bill on the bill the license number of the automobile driven by the purchaser. The license number was issued to Bruno Richard Hauptman in 1279 East 222nd Street, Bronx, New York. He was promptly taken into custody by representatives of the three interested agencies. After some investigating, he found to be Bruno He was found to be Bruno Richard Hauptmann, the individual to whom the automobile license had been issued, a German carpenter who had been in this country for approximately 11 years. The carpenter. A $20 gold ransom certificate was found on his person. His description fitted perfectly that of John, as described of Dr. Conan, and in his house was found a pair of shoes, which had been purchased with with a $20 ransom bill, recovered on September 8, 1934. On the night of September 19th, 1934, he was positively identified by Joseph Peroni as the individual who, from whom he had received the fifth ransom note to be delivered to Dr. Conan. Shortly after his apprehension, specimens of Hopman's handwriting were flown to Washington, D.C., where a study was made of them in the FBI laboratory. A comparison of the writing appearing on the ransom notes and that of the specimens disclosed, remarkable similarities, inconspicuous in inconspicuous personal characteristics and writing habits, which resulted in positive identification by the handwriting experts of the laboratory. So they think it was believed that he wrote the 
you know, the notes. Do we know how, like, accurate handwriting comparison is? I don't know. Look it up. I really don't know. <laughs> no scientific evidence exists to support graphology, and it's generally considered a pseudoscience or scientifically questionable practice. Wow. Well, the FBI did it, so... <laughs> Further investigation revealed that Hauptmann was a 35-year-old native of Saxony, Germany. He had a criminal record for robbery and had spent time in prison. Early in July 1923, he stowed abroad the SSS Hanover at Berman, Germany, and arrived in port, the port of New York City on July 13, 1923, but he was arrested and deported immediately. After another failed attempt at entry in August, Hauptmann successfully entered the United States in November 1923 on the board of George Washington. On October 10, 1925, Hauptmann married Anna Schoeffler, a New York City waitress, and had a son they named Manfred, and he was born in 1933. During his illegal stay in New York City and until the spring of 1932, Hauptmann followed his occupation as a carpenter. However, a short while after March 1st, 1932, the date of the kidnapping, Hauptmann began to trade rather exclusively in stocks and never worked again. Interesting. Hauptmann was indicted into the Supreme Court of Bronx City, New York, on charges of extortion, on October 26, 1934, and on October 8, 1934, in Hunter Dunn County, New York, New Jersey, he was indicted for murder. Two days later, the governor of the state of New York honored the requisition of the governor of the state of New Jersey for the surrender of Bruno Richard Hopman, and on October 19, 1934, he was moved from the Hunter Dunn County Jail to Flemington, New Jersey, to await a trial. Sorry, I know there's a lot of dates in this case, but they're all important, so... <laughs> the trial of Hopman began on January 3rd, 1935 at Flemington, New Jersey, and lasted five weeks. The case against him was based on circumstantial evidence. Tool marks on the ladder matched tools owned by Hopman. Wood in the ladder were found to be matched to the wood used as flooring in his attic. Dr. Conan's telephone number and address were found scrawled on a door frame inside a closet. Handwriting on the ransom notes matched sample of Hopman's handwriting. Both Lindbergh and his wife testified about events on the evening in which their son was kidnapped and likely killed. Anne's testimony was so wrought with tears that the defense did not even cross-examine her, which I kind of feel like that's the defense's job regardless, but whatever. Yeah. Conan, who met with the kidnapper twice, also testified in trial. However, Hopman refused to confess to his crimes and continued to say he was innocent. But on February 13, 1935, the jury returned a verdict. Hopman was guilty of murder in the first degree. The sentence was death, and the defense appealed. The Supreme Court of the state of New Jersey on October 9, 1935, upheld the verdict of the lower court. Hopman's appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States was denied on December 9, 1935, and he was set to be electrocuted on, 19, on January 17, 1936. However, on this same day, the governor of the state of New Jersey granted a 30-day reprieve, and on February 17, 1936, Hopman was... Resentenced to be electrocuted during the week of March 30th, 1936. On March 30th, 1936, the pardon court of the state of New Jersey denied Hopman's petition for clemency. And on April 3rd, 1936, at 8.47 p.m., Bruno Richard Hopman was electrocuted by the chair. Part of me wonders if he actually did it or not, because I know that there are like conspiracy theories that the Lindberghs like paid somebody to do it or something. 
but I don't know if I fall into that camp. But the fact that the case was pretty much all circumstantial, I'm like, especially nowadays when we're finding out how many of, I don't know, I think he at least helped. Probably. But I guess nowadays that we're finding out like a lot of people were convicted on circumstantial evidence and then are later found to be not guilty. Part of me wonders like how much responsibility did this guy actually have? I don't know. It's something to think about. I think he was involved with it at least because I mean, yeah, he has all of the ransom bills and all the notes. Yeah. But was he did he do it of his own volition? Because, like, to me, I'm not, like, making excuses for this guy. If he did it, then he did it and he got the punishment. But this is, I guess, just presenting an alternative theory based on the idea that, like, people are falsely convicted for murder and things like that. But what if this immigrant from Germany who has been struggling is presented with the opportunity to get a bunch of money for doing something. Yeah, but for killing a kid, I don't think, I don't, I mean, I think if Charles... I'm, I'm not saying, like, for killing the kid, but what I'm saying is, like, pretending to kidnap the kid. Like, if he was the one who actually killed the kid, then, like, obviously all of this is null and void. Like, it doesn't matter. But I guess for me, I'm like, what if whoever actually did kill the kid was the one who, like, hired this guy to be, like, pretend to be me the one who kidnapped this kid or something and i'll give you money i don't know it's a conspiracy theory i guess <laughs> so like i don't know that that just came to my mind because i'm like this is after the great depression right around the start of world war ii yeah he's a german immigrant probably not doing very well financially like if he was presented with the opportunity to make a lot of money he would probably do whatever he was asked to do so just something to think about. Okay, so though Hopman is considered the official kidnapper of Charles Lindbergh Jr., that hasn't stopped conspiracy theorists from coming up with their own version of what happened. Defenders of Hopman are quick to point out that his fingerprints were never found on the ladder or any of the ransom notes. And they also attest to the fact that the crime scene was a mess from start and that any available evidence was quickly compromised by the media circus that it became. Some experts, both self-proclaimed and legitimate, have theorized that Hopman was a scapegoat and that Lindbergh knew who the real kidnapper was but was either in on it or was too afraid to say anything. But one of the most popular claims is that allegedly the kidnapping was done by Lindbergh Sr. himself. Some allege that he accidentally killed his son while attempting a practical joke and then staged the kidnapping to cover up his crimes, pointing a finger at Hopman to cover up his own deeds. Other believe that Lindbergh orchestrated the kidnapping as a publicity stunt and then after he was the hired kidnappers to not get what they want they wanted Lindbergh promised or what to did not get what Lindbergh promised them the stunt went wrong Lindbergh and the, his family and the New Jersey State Police have argued that the theories that he was responsible for kidnapping insisting that everybody they knew about that everything they knew about the case suggested it had been legitimate and that the toddler's death was simply the result of the kidnapper snapping under pressure whatever the case it is closed so regardless of what it is it's closed. I mean, we still go back to it, but mm -hmm. he was charged and um, electrocuted. But outside of the pop culture and media, the case broke ground when it pushed Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act, which made transporting a kidnapping victim across state lines a federal offense. It is referred to as the Lindbergh Law, and that is the case of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Interesting. Yeah, because I don't know. I don't know. I think that Hopman was 
I think he was in on it. He was probably involved. Yeah, he was probably involved. I don't know if I think he was the only one involved, though. I just don't think that Charles... I just don't think the parents did it. No. Yeah, I don't either. Because I'm thinking of the case of Madeline McCann when she was abducted in Portugal. A lot of people have been like, oh, the parents did it, you know? And it's like... Yeah. And the same with, like, John JonBenet Ramsey. They either think that the parents or the brother did it and the parents are trying to cover up. And it's like, I know that it happens. I know that parents kill their kids. Like, that is a thing that happens. But I guess maybe it's naive of me to think that that isn't, like, as common as people want to believe it is. <laughs> I just personally don't think that he did it. He was so famous. Like, you know what I'm saying? He was so, yeah. he had, he was already so famous. If he did it, then that would, they're going to think he did it first. Yeah. And I don't know what the motivation would be to do it other than to like gain sympathy. I think a practical joke is stupid. Yeah. But you're already considered an American hero. Like before he had no. Yeah. Yeah. He had no controversy circling him like around that time. Most of the controversy comes after the baby was kidnapped and killed. But it's also a two year old. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't think that. Yeah. I don't think either of the parents were in on it, to be honest. I don't think I think it was somebody who knew that they were rich. Like I could believe that maybe somebody in their circle, maybe. But I don't think it was them. I don't think they were involved. If anything, he didn't act alone. So if Kaufman was no. guilty, he there was there was somebody else who needed to be held responsible, but they found him and they put all the blame on him. Well, they, he also didn't give any other names, so... Mm, that's true. But I guess for me, I'm like... The reason why I'm hesitant is just because the evidence that was used against him, like the methods, I guess have since been proven to be like faulty (laughs) like the graphology or whatever true and it's it's like people who get convicted over a polygraph test and it's like that's we've proven now that they're like a guide i guess but like you can very easily like fail even though you're telling the truth just because you're nervous so it's like i don't know there's no real way to know for sure if somebody is actually guilty unless they actually own up to it i guess to play devil's advocate though the media like the house was rushed by like hundreds of people to begin with so any evidence they could have found was already you couldn't it was already impossible to find at that point yeah that makes sense but i don't know i guess that's kind of where i'm like coming at it from because like i don't want people to think that i'm making excuses for a murderer I guess I'm just true skeptical because I'm like, okay, but with the evidence that they did use to convict him, do we actually know if it was him entirely? I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm not on board with the, with the parents. I just don't think the parents had anything to do with it. I think it was probably like a bunch of people, like not a bunch, but more than him. Yeah. But I just don't think that the parents had anything to do with it. Yeah. That I can agree with. I mean, aside from losing their kid, they also had more than, like, a lot to lose if they <laughs> they killed their kid. So, I mean. Exactly. So, I don't know, man. <sighs> well, that poor baby suffered for something that wasn't even his own fault. I don't know. That makes me sad. So, I guess we'll just leave it at that. 
thanks so much for ruining my evening. You're welcome. I'm here every day. <laughs> you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on Facebook at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. You can find us on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. And then we have our website, which is shockinglywicked.com, or you can type in shockinglywickedpodcast.com and it'll take you to the exact same place. We've got all of our links on there as well. Patreon is Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We have three separate tiers. So if you want, you can go check that out. You get free stuff whenever we have it. You get early access to merch. We have just kind of redone our merch store, which I'm very excited about. So you can go and check that out on our website as well. If you have case suggestions, you can send those to us at shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com or through the contact form on our website. Just select that from the drop down menu. And I believe that's everything. We are looking forward to our spooky season episodes starting next week. I hope you are too. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.